Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from director Geoffrey Sachs about filming new BBC drama Us Across Europe before COVID-19 struck, completing post-production during lockdown, and the challenges series set in multiple locations might face moving forwards. Executive producer Tim Key and Red Planet Pictures joint managing director Alex Jones speak from Guadalupe about getting back to work on the 10th season of crime drama Death in Paradise, one of the first British series to restart production following the coronavirus shutdown. And Chloe Thomas, director of Channel 5's psychological drama The Deceived, discusses finding inspiration in Alfred Hitchcock, casting normal people breakout star Paul Meskell and working with crew from Game of Thrones on some extraordinary stunts. At a time when many summer holidays have been cancelled, BBC four-part drama Us promises to take viewers on a grand tour of Europe. Tom Hollander stars in the adaptation of David Nichols' novel about a man who is blindsided when his wife, played by Saskia Reeves, tells him their marriage is over. Agreeing to still go on their planned family holiday, he vows to win her back and repair his troubled relationship with their son, played by Tom Taylor. Series director Geoffrey Sachs spoke with Michael Picard about filming across Europe, how the drama completed post-production during the coronavirus lockdown and the challenges series set in multiple locations might face in a post-Covid world. First of all, the story happens over three different time frames. That's present day and then you flash back 25 years ago and then later on you flash back to just um, 10 years ago. So it's three different time frames, but it starts off with um, the present day with, with Douglas and uh, Connie in bed together and Connie just makes an announcement that she thinks the marriage is over and Douglas is very shocked. But you learn that they plan to go on a grand tour of Europe, a, a, a great big holiday, which was going to be um, a three-week holiday over six countries and, and 12 cities. And they decide still to go. They booked all the tickets. It would cost a lot to cancel everything. And they decide to go. And Douglas uses this as a quest to get Connie back. And they start off in Paris. And, and he's one of these people who you really empathise with. But the more he tries, the sort of the more he digs himself in into a hole and, and eventually the whole thing falls apart. And um, he has a row with his son, Albie, in Amsterdam. Albie decides to go off on his own. And then the rest of the story really is Douglas's quest to repair things with his son and then ultimately with his wife. So that's the main story. So they decide to go to, to France, Spain, Italy and Holland. So all in all, we, we shot in five countries. We shot in the UK, France, Spain, Italy and Holland. Luckily enough, the picture was wrapped sort of around about the 12th of October. Um, so I went into the cutting room by the time uh, Carmela, the editor, had got it to get together for me to see. That was sort of the end of October. And, and we edited November, December, obviously a couple of weeks off over Christmas and edited through January and Feb and the beginning of March. And then obviously the lockdown happened, by which time we sort of more or less finished about three of the episodes. I mean, all bar a few BBC notes and we were into episode four. And then everything changed and we went remote. And I hadn't heard of Zoom before then. I don't think many people had. And so we were able to edit together in real time so we could see each other, obviously speak to each other and, and edit in real time. So it's not obviously the same as the interaction of being in an actual room together, but it was the next best thing. So the, the editing was um, fairly seamless. Again, the, what slowed us down was normally the executives would then all come in to a screening in Soho where we, where we were beforehand and we'd have notes and then we'd sometimes we'd do them there and then and uh, sometimes we'd you know be left on our own for two or three days and then they'd all either come in again or we'd send them 
copies of the programs, the episodes. But this time, again, we, we had to send them out each time. Uh, people had to see them. Sometimes they were having difficulty downloading them. So that was all a bit slower. But eventually we, we got there. And then, of course, all the sound editing and the color grading and the all the CGI effects, of which there are quite a few in this, had to be done remotely. And, and that was a little bit more painful, I have to say. People in post-production, I guess, were the, were the first to have to deal with all these new... Uh issues weren't they so I guess you've you've probably led the way along with other shows that are kind of coming out at the moment and, and ironed out any issues <laughs> further down the line well we did I mean the, the, there were a whole load of, of new things happening on car post we're, we're developing systems so we had a some thing called stream box so again I was able to see stuff and, and so were the executives on this on this, the iPad screens and um, it was sort of all evolving and um, you know, once the connections were stable and everything was working, it actually worked okay. And it made me realise that things will change in the future. I mean, I think there will still be, it's still nice to go into a, into a suite and, and, and be there with them. But if, for example, you're abroad or you've got executives who are abroad rather than everybody travelling in and, you know, as I've worked um, a lot in America and, you know, each time there was a, an effects thing, I had to fly over there or a sound thing, I had to fly over there. Well, now a lot more of that can be done remotely. So it has sort of, I think, probably about, five years worth of evolution in post has happened within a few months. So it's been really surprising. It's pros and cons, but it's been surprising. I mean, one of the actual, the trickiest things that we found was that we we filmed, we only had one and a half days shooting in Venice, which is where uh, Douglas ends up with Albie, the, his young son. And we filmed the interiors of the hotel room in uh, Harefield House, which is in Uxbridge, with a green screen, because obviously we, we weren't going to go to Venice and be cooped up in a room when there's canals and gondolas outside. So we filmed this in Uxbridge with a green screen. And what you do is you you set your camera up and you you mark the height of the camera from the ground, the angle that it's at, pointing out towards the window, say, where the green screen was, and the lens. And then we were going to go back, or at least uh, Ed Rutherford, the director of photography, was going to go back with Mark Napton, the this effects guy from the brewery. They were going to go back out to Venice and replicate those shots exactly so that we had exact matches well then the um the pandemic set in and venice was in lockdown as well so we couldn't do any of those the plate shots so what we had to do was was uh, mark had to um sort of do a patchwork of, of some of the stuff that we shot on the streets in venice or on by the canals in venice and we we happened to, to have shot a few down the grand canal so he was able to stitch all that together and that was all fine for the day shot so it actually looked i would say as good as what we would have really gone back and shot i mean in practical terms it pr- probably cost more because of his time on the mach- machinery he had to stitch all this stuff together and then we didn't have that the, there are scenes when um Tom Holland, Douglas is in the Venice hotel room at night. And obviously you have to see the Grand Canal at night. And we didn't have any shots of that at night at all. So he had to put little lights in windows, make it all look dark. And it actually looks, it's so seamless. I don't think anybody would ever know that we weren't actually in Venice rather than in Harefield, the Grove in Uxbridge. Funnily enough, we, we, we shot the interior of um, the Venice hotel in Barcelona because we had very little, Venice is so expensive to shoot in and it's obviously quite hard to get around because of the canals. So we shot the Venice reception in Barcelona again with a green screen and we had done some shots looking a bit straight down a canal and that made a perfect background. So that, so that was funny enough almost at the same angle as the camera was in the reception. So we were very lucky there. So, so we lucked out there. So all in all, I think it, it worked very well. It was just a, a bit sort of a, a painful exercise getting there. Do you think us is going to be the last time for a little while, at least, that we see a show quite like this filming in, in so many different locations? 
Well, I think it will be because, because, you know, logistically it was difficult enough as it was without COVID, you know, and I think with all the restrictions now and the quarantines and all that, it would be, be very hard to do it, at least in the foreseeable future. But um, for us, it was like a military operation. And, and, and unfortunately enough, we, we had a formidable team of Hannah Pescott, who's our producer, and Pat Lee's the line producer, and Matt Jennings, the first assistant, all got together and scheduled it. And, and then in each separate country, in each separate uh, city, we had our own uh, different production companies um, with their own location managers and production managers looking after us. And um, we were on a very tight schedule. It's very ambitious because obviously it was a BBC budget. It wasn't the Netflix budget so we had to do it in in a certain time frame over 12 weeks in these five countries and that included travel and everything else and um, so it had to run to a very very tight schedule and there was no room very very little room for anything to go wrong. What practical challenges would you foresee you know in a, in a post-covid world shooting on locations around the world is it just a health and safety case or are there sort of many other factors that you would have to consider? The big problem is basically with it's two things. It's one with the social distancing, and that's the that's the, mo- the most difficult one because it it's kind of sounds all right on paper, but normally when you say right, let's um, you, you've done a rehearsal, and you say right, let's go for a take. Everybody, it's like, it's it's like a hornet's nest. Everybody's rushing around. You've you've got the the sparks going in and jigging the lighting. Makeup are doing sometimes makeup on set. Costume designers are in there. Props are doing their thing, and then you say cut, reset. And everybody goes in again. Well, this time, if you've just got to go in two by two, that's going to slow things down enormously. And I mean, if you think about it, we say we're doing, say, 20, 25 setups a day. That's going to be brought right down to about 10 or 15, I would have thought. So I think you have to plan even more carefully and you, you just have to shoot less shots or be more careful in your choreography. I, th- I think it, it is a problem. I know that some productions are doing it and sort of getting by on schedule. And I take my hat off to them because it does seem quite formidable, you know, and I, and I have heard of, of um, situations where you've got, you have to have a COVID advisor on the set and, you, you know, they're going in and saying, oh, you, you know, stay away from one another and the crew are getting quite cross about it. So I think it's going to be sort of slightly fraught with problems, but you do, you adjust because you have to. I mean, I'm just hoping and praying there's going to be some vaccine so we can get back to business as usual, but I can't see it at the moment. I was interested, obviously, that you know David Nichols is adapting his own novel for, for the series. I mean, what's yeah. it like working with a writer when he's rewriting his own book and then you've obviously got to, to commit that to film? Well, it's always difficult because they, obviously, David has a very specific view of, of how, how he imagines it to be. And it's going to be different, but I think that sometimes that he'd see the, he was actually very supportive with uh, looking at the, we, we do assemblers at the end of each week and they, and, and they see them. And, and I think he, he thought we were going in, in the right direction. I think when he saw the first cut, he said, oh, I didn't quite imagine it like this. But of course, it's everybody's going to interpret things in a different way. But I think because he'd had such a, a hand in the casting, the, the characters were as he imagined, and that and that was, or as near to possible as he imagined. So that's a huge hurdle. I mean, I think that when I, I read, the, I'd read the book a few years before I came onto this, and it, it's almost like he, he wrote it for Tom Holland. I don't think he did, but it, but that's how it seems. So I think it's always difficult for writers to let go. But but in the end, I, I hope anyway I, I, that, that, that David seems to be very happy with it, which is which is great because I'm such a fan of his work. I mean, when I when I went for the first meeting, I told them that. Um, you know, I was a huge fan. And I don't think they believe me. I thought they thought that I was just saying it to try and get hired. But I really am. I've, I've, I've read all his books. I saw Started at 10. I saw One Day. I'd read One Day. I'd read Us. And so to get to work with him was quite something. It's so rare 
that you you pick up a script and you think yeah i really 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 want to do this one and i can make something of it it's, it's so it's so rare you know for something this this good and this be- most beautifully written david's dialogue is just is so good and it just seems to be easy for the actors to say and you know you can be on set sometimes where you know you're looking at the script and going oh how are we going to are we going to make this work? But the scenes are so well thought through and, and the whole thing was very well sort of planned out at script stage. There was a lot of script development. Um, obviously, adapting a book is always a huge thing and there was a, a, there was a lot of script development and, and I think that they just got it right. Geoffrey Sachs, director of Us, which begins its run on BBC One this Sunday at 9pm. Filming got underway once again on the 10th season of BBC crime drama Death in Paradise in July, becoming one of the first television series to restart production following the coronavirus-enforced shutdown. Executive producer Tim Key and Red Planet Pictures joint managing director Alex Jones spoke to Michael Picard from the French Caribbean island of Guadalupe, where the series is made, and revealed the steps they took to ensure cast and crew remain safe and healthy during the six-month shoot, and how they think the industry may change moving forward. It means everything to us to be back because, you know, we never take anything for granted. And I think that um, every year we sort of, you know, you, you look at the ratings when they come in and you look at the, um, the, and we're always delighted, but we never kind of just go, ah, oh, it'll be fine. We never think that. And I think that, that it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to keep the show, given that it's a show with a formula and a format, um, and, it, you know, it has a number of boxes to tick to make everybody get what they want out of it. Uh, we have to make sure that creatively we're challenging ourselves and trying to keep the show fresh as well. And we do that sometimes in quite small ways that the average viewer might not notice, and then other times in more profound ways to do two-parters and different kinds of puzzles and guest casting and that thing. So when we were planning the 10th year, we just decided to sort of load it up with, um, with treats, and, and that's what, we, what we've done. And then um, we looked at what else we wanted to do to sort of thank the viewers who've been with us from the beginning and also sort of twist the show around again and push it forward for the, the next 10 years. So um, it, it, it was a lot of fun to plan. And um, we were just, just about to start filming when, uh, when the, the lockdown happened. And, and then the thing just sort of shifted into another, another realm. But I'm delighted that we kind of stuck to our guns and creatively, we are absolutely shooting the show we always intended to shoot. It's, it's, we've made very, very little concession uh, creatively uh, for COVID. And the, thing, and the concessions we have made are ones that I don't think that the audience would ever really spot. And so, so tell us about that then. I mean, you, what have you been doing to prepare for this moment when you've travelled overseas and you've got, you know, a mixed crew, mixed cast um, in the French Caribbean? You know, how, how have you got to this point? What steps have you had to take? We were about five weeks into prep when we stood down. Uh, I think we, we had to continue on the trajectory for, to, to a certain point until there was a specific sort of event that meant that we absolutely couldn't produce the series. And so that sort of came when they started to sort of close borders. And we had a few crew that were out here in Guadeloupe and it was sort of about getting them back really. So that was sort of the first thing. And then I'll be honest, I think we all sat back and just tried to take in, I think as as did the world, sort of what was going on around us and try and sort of understand what that meant for us as a production. And I think probably at the beginning, in those slightly sort of bleaker moments, we were thinking this just wasn't going to be possible. I think the advantage that we have on our side is that we have a great insurance policy with Zurich 
who, you know, that has like a producer's indemnity aspect to it, which is what has got us out of a pickle on a number of occasions um, and, you know, covers us, I think, like hurricanes and stuff like that, which sometimes traditional cover doesn't do. And so our COVID remounts essentially fell into that. So we were pretty unique and lucky in the fact that we were covered for insurance as soon as they were able to give us the nod that we could go. So I think that, you know, what sort of then ensued was all the various conversations about, you know, can you build social distancing into the show, which we felt that because it's one metre in France, that we could do that, that we could make a show sort of observing sort of one metre social distancing. And I think something that Tim always felt very confident with was that the type of show that Death in Paradise is leans very much towards a kind of COVID-friendly world. You know, it's not like we have huge amounts of intimacy. It's not like we have huge amounts of stunts and kind of physical interaction. And um, and we film a lot outdoors just because we're in the Caribbean. We want to see the Caribbean. So I think we had a lot of things working to our advantage. And then that with the fact that we were really fortunate in terms of the insurance cover we had, started to feel like it was coming together. Um, and then our sort of bigger issues beyond that were access to Guadeloupe because they kind of closed that corridor to all but essential business. And we work, you know, we work quite closely with the sort of the region of Guadeloupe anyway. And we kind of shared with them what our concerns and issues were. And they were very quick in coming back and supporting us and saying that as long as we have the appropriate sort of safety regimes in place, like testing and, and, and sort of all the other aspects, that they saw us as a sort of a, an essential part of their economy and that they then supported us in returning. And, uh, and so they kind of gave us an exemption. So that meant we could start bringing our crew back. And at that point, I think when all those things came together, we were like, right, let's do this. And we kind of fired the starting gun, really. It did feel like it was sort of three steps forward, two steps back. It would be a week where everything felt very positive and then suddenly some piece of information would come and you, you got back and it was never going to happen. And then when it finally all came together, it came together really very quickly. And it was a Friday when Alex and I were sort of on one of our many Zoom calls, just going, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, right? And then he had to make the call to press the button. And on the Monday... We were loading stuff onto boats and that was the last deadline to, to get stuff onto the ships that, that need to bring it over. It takes four weeks for the boats that brings our generators and lighting gear to get here. So it was sort of the last possible time we had to load that stuff up. So when it happened, it happened really quickly. And for the months before it, really stressful, like it was for everyone in, in every industry. You're dealing with a lockdown anyway on a personal level and you're dealing with it on a professional level and, and trying to get used to that new normal of working from home and you know sharing your home with your work colleagues on Zoom, all that sort of stuff. And at the same time trying to think, can this show be made? And can we get people there to make it? Yeah. And we felt quite quickly, yes, it can be made, but coming get them there to make it was, was harder to quantify until suddenly it happened. And, and now we're here doing it. It's so surreal. It's really weird in a brilliant way, but it is ever so strange. I guess a big part of getting people back to work is making sure they're happy to be back to work. I mean, did you have any doubts or hesitations from cast or crew about getting back to work, you know, quite so quickly? Quite the opposite, actually. I think everybody that was already on board really was keen to get started and to come out here. And because we worked so hard, particularly Alex and, you know, our production team and our health and safety people, more so than me directly, but on the protocols and the, um, 
policies. We could show our cast and crew what we were planning on doing in the same way that really with Guadeloupe, we said, this is what we're proposing. And they said, that's great. And um, it wasn't like they kind of put a series of demands in. We said, if we do all this, can we come? And they said, yes. I think it was the same with the cast and crew. We communicated a lot and we said to them, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we're going to ask of you. And some of it won't be easy, but this is what it's going to take to get our industry back on its feet and to get our show back on its feet. And it has been quite remarkable how, how happy they are to be associated with one of the first shows to get up and running. And kind of they understand that there's a lot of attention on them and that they have to do these things. And they're not doing these things in a sort of... Um, which your boss is coming type way, you know, they are wearing masks all the time and it's really hot and um, they are social distancing on set. They are doing everything that we ask them to do. So an automatic thing, not because we've sort of been forced it. If I'm really honest, I found it quite moving and quite stressful for, for everybody involved in our industries. We're trying to work out what on earth any of this means. And then to suddenly find ourselves on a recce for the show, I found really strange. And then we were sat at a production meeting and it was a normal production meeting, but it was socially distanced and everybody was uh, attentive and excited. And then suddenly we were calling action on set and you suddenly go, it's happening. Like, we've done it. It's happening. We can make this show. I think what's also been quite unique, Michael, is um, the way production companies have worked together. And I think we kept each other sane because we all found ourselves in a situation where there was no precedent for anything we were doing. And, you know, I think if I'd have had to have tackled that on my own uh, as a sort of managing director and sort of leading the company, I think I would have uh, gone nuts. And, you know, this group of all the indies that have worked together in a, in a number of different ways and on a number of different levels, you know, some with PACs, through PACs specific working groups, some with the BSC on their sort of protocol document, a working group of heads of production. You know, it has been a massive collaboration and sharing of information and ideas and documents. And I think that, you know, I'm aware that we're leading the way, you know, in one aspect, but, you know, every show is different and has a slightly different set of rules and way of managing things because we're socially distancing across the board. Other, uh, Productions are like established uh, close contact cohorts, which need to be managed in an entirely different way. But it has been, I'd say, it's been really, really brilliant working with everybody together and finding those solutions and sharing together. I mean, what What are some of those things that you've learned you know, that you will be passing on? What has sort of become apparent, or how have you been doing things on set that other people might want to follow? I, I think the, the first thing is a positive one, which is just how, like I said before, how everyone is sticking to these rules and everybody is, is taking them seriously. They're doing it in a very real, genuine way because they know what's at stake in terms of the industry, their livelihoods, and also their health. It's very hard to put a set of guidelines in place that apply obviously to every show because every show is different, but even to every location because every location is different. And and, um, and when we film outdoors and, um, you know, it's, it's different, even when we film indoors, our indoors location is quite different to an indoor location in the UK. So, you know, they are guidelines and they have to be interpreted and sort of empowering the people, giving them the training, uh, hiring the right people. We have a COVID supervisor on set. We've got a health and safety advisor out with us at the moment as well working with them and our line producer and our producer to adapt when necessary so that we are delivering safety as we need to, but still enabling the shoot to run. 
you can't just go, these are always the rules that must be absolutely obeyed, because you'll then go to a location that doesn't quite fit that, and a degree of interpretation is necessary. So it's just empowering everybody to be responsible and training the crew to work in a slightly different way and making sure that the whole thing doesn't rest on the shoulders of one person alone. It's, it's a shared responsibility to kind of, um, to deliver that. And I think people, you know, people are being very good at wearing masks. I think what people get fed up with is putting them on and off, on and off, on and off. So people are tending to leave them on. And that kind of means that you can be slightly more flexible in the way in which you do things. You know, and we probably, you know, are in a more fortunate situation because we are almost in a bit of a bubble anyway on an island that has a very low rate of the virus and so you know we tested everybody before they left tested everybody when they arrived and at the beginning of block one so you know we're quite confident that no one's got it and we kind of you know we're doing fit to work uh, declarations every morning everybody has to complete that on their phone with their temperature just to kind of as a, as a sort of mental check to themselves that they're sort of fit and healthy and don't have any symptoms and, you know, and that works. We're also giving people of options of different masks because some work for some people, some don't work for others. We also using visors in some instances, makeup use those as well. And so, you know, I think we're learning and adjusting our risk assessment protocols as we go. You know, having a set of rules that actually are work and are enforceable rather than just doing it as a box-ticking exercise. Because I think for us, the bottom line is we want to get through the end of this production without anyone contracting the virus so that we can make it and we can deliver it on schedule. So I think, yeah, and that's what we really drilled into people. We're not just trying to tick boxes. There is an upside and a benefit and a way to mitigate the risk that the production faces. And if everyone does their bit, we should be able to keep the production sort of running. Can you already see, you know, how the industry might change going forward? I guess, you know, more generally, do you think there'll be longer shoots, you know, bigger budgets, maybe just for, to have some sort of backup in case things do go wrong or other measures that, you know, smaller crews? I don't think you'll end up with smaller crews. I think that, you know, there was an obvious sort of initial reaction to some of, you know, the, the how do you shoot in a social, social distance world? But I think the industry is smarter than that. I think you know, production companies are smarter than that at finding solutions. And, and we have, and that has meant, you know, additional cost and putting extra things in place. But I do believe that shows will ultimately be delivered as brilliant as they were ever meant to be. And that um, we will continue to find smart solutions to difficult problems. Uh, I think as well, during, during that lockdown, when we didn't know what was happening, one of the things that we did, I think, was hold our nerve. For a while because early on when no one really knew what was happening anywhere let alone in, in the industry there were a lot of, oh it'll have to be like this and it'll have to be like that and there's no way you can do it without this and um, just in terms of just testing at one point it was all about antibody tests that's the way to secure it if everyone has antibody tests that and the more you dug into that the more you realize that they don't prove i mean there's a reliability issue there's a, then a question of what they actually prove and tell you and uh, but there was a moment where we could have just gone out and bought thousands of antibody tests that would have been you know kind of useless wouldn't we and I think that with things like that you go let's just all calm down and hold our nerve and find out where it's settling and the industry's going to be doing that for quite a time just because we're up and running here a shoot in London faces entirely different challenges when those shows report back everybody will adapt so I, I agree with Alex that the industry will find a way I have no idea really how it will change because I think it's going to be a long process of just honing 
things and just working through it. And I think it will be sort of about how you mitigate those kind of border risks. Um, I think it will be the sort of insurance solution, which the government have sort of set aside a pot of money to help underwrite some of those productions and sort of get the industry moving again, um, which I think is fantastic. And I think PACT did a brilliant uh, amount of work lobbying for that and um, with with some other production companies, illegal, you know, heads and legal teams at production companies. That's one thing that will really help some of those other productions get moving again. And then I think it will be about how you share the cost and the risk with the various stakeholders, because I don't think you can plan for every eventuality. And I think you know, there is obviously risk of second waves, further lockdowns, and it's sort of how you share that risk really without the burden all just falling on the producer. Tim Key and Alex Jones. From the creator of award-winning Northern Irish sitcom Derry Girls Comes the Deceived, a four-part series from the UK's Channel 5 that blends horror and psychological drama to tell the story of a university student who falls in love with her married lecturer, but a shocking death leaves her in a world where she can no longer trust her own mind. Director Chloe Thomas, whose credits also include ITV Hulu drama Harlots, spoke with Michael Picard about the making of the series, from finding inspiration in Alfred Hitchcock and filming in Belfast, to casting normal people breakout star Paul Meskell and working with crew from Game of Thrones on some extraordinary stunts. The only thing I had to really do in lockdown was the EPK. So they said, oh, do you want to just write some answers? I said, no, I want to be in it. So I just filmed myself on my phone. That was it, really. So it was all done before that. There was a bit of remote stuff because it, it all was shot and the post was in Northern Ireland in Belfast. So, you know, there were things that were done sort of remotely or it was all done. You know, it was a very tight turnaround. And actually then, as all these things, it's it scheduling, you know, where, where will it go the best? And then the pandemic. So that actually threw all the schedules out. Like, what, what does that mean? Because it's quite a dark show to look at, spooky dark. On the other hand being put up against repeats and it's an original drama people are now running out of original drama I guess so I think that might have influenced the BBC's decision to buy Harlots for example so actually it's a good time to put it out and it's made a big impact because of Lisa and Toby being the writers and creators and fantastic cast obviously Paul Meskell's rising star has helped bring a different kind of audience to Channel 5 which is fantastic it's very interesting because we are his second ever role and he came on board two days after finishing filming on Normal People. And I haven't read the book, but obviously I knew how big it was. So I knew it was going to be big. But as soon as I saw his audition tape, I just thought he's brilliant. He's got to do this part. It's, he's so, I mean, the clues in previous titles, he's so good at being normal, but epic. He's such a good actor. At first I thought, well, I'm not going to watch anyone else. I just want him. And then I then I panicked and thought, what if we don't get him? So I started watching everyone else, of course. But, you know, luckily he didn't want to do it. He was really attracted by the Irish story. And, um, yeah, so we're really lucky. And he's such a he's such a lovely person. I know it's cliche, but he is very talented, lovely. Take me back to the beginning, really, in terms of your involvement. And, I mean, it's certainly not a show that you would uh, imagine from the writer of Derry Girls, but... Um... Tell us what initially attracted you to the, to the scripts and, and how you initially imagined you might sort of uh, bring it to the screen. Well, that's the thing. You wouldn't associate it with it, even though, you know, Derry Girls is such a genius creation. Actually, Lisa's written so much more drama than that anyway. And both of them, I didn't realise this until I met them, have got this amazing love of 
old-fashioned thrillers, the classic thrillers. So the classic Spooky House, the Who Done It, She Loves Murder, She Wrote, um, Hitchcock. So when you find that out, then it makes sense. They wanted to create something that was slightly otherworldly. So it's a, it creates its own world, and yet it is contemporary. But you leave some of the contemporary world behind, and it's in that world of Irish ghost stories being isolated from your normal life. And then it's got this layer of gaslighting going on. And then when they talked to me about it, I think the genesis of the idea for them came from partly when she was pregnant with her first child, that the hormones do send you batshit crazy. And I was saying, yeah, they do, they do. I was eating Haribo and sushi, like really not a good combination for my first kid. (laughs) But that combined with her love of thrillers and both of them being husband and wife and writers, it's just a brilliant way of expressing that. So you have a woman who's doubting her mind because... Maybe she thinks, oh, she's pregnant. She doesn't know what's happening. Hormones. Actually, she's being gaslighted by this man who's very charismatic and has the power. And he's already he does it. He's done it to his, you know, wife in the past, which you see more of in flashbacks. So I think it's all those came together. You know, my involvement was when they sent me the first script. I had a meeting, and they all said at the end, "Oh, have you got any questions?" My main question was, "Can I read the next episode?" I just wanted to know what was happening. You know, what was going to happen? Because I love the line between, is it supernatural, is it not? I'm a skeptic, but I absolutely, if you saw my bookshelf, it's full of books about supernatural. Because I believe, you know, we have created the supernatural and we feel something, but it doesn't exist. But it's there, you can't deny it. So I love that ambiguity in it. And I just love the crazy, intricate plotting and the fact that you feel lost and you don't know who to trust. Do you have a particular way you like to work with the actors and... and um, you know, do lots of rehearsal time or are you kind of an on-set director where you're kind of just letting the, the actors kind of find their way through through the scenes? I love rehearsing. Even if it's just literally just to sit in a room together, it just makes all the difference. So we did actually get rehearsal, which was fantastic because I needed a dynamic between Emmett and Emily. I just needed what they were like as two animals, really. And also I talked to a therapist, a friend of mine, to talk about coercive relationships. And I said, what is actually the body language between people? You know, what are the men like who sit next to their partner and you're trying to, what do they do? How do they touch their wives or whatever? So I was interested, I talked to them about that. Yeah, so I love rehearsals, but often with things like when I've done Victorian Harlots, you don't get any rehearsals. You come in, everyone knows, You, you sometimes you don't even, I didn't even get to meet some of them uh, like uh, Liv Tyler, I didn't get to meet before the shoot. You hang around and say hi, but you don't get rehearsals. They know their character. You know, you're you're a couple of series in. First of all, it's like, don't tell me. You have to get over that. It's completely different going to a big show. So, so just tell us a bit about what life was like on set. Were there any kind of challenges that you had in terms of um, scenes or locations or things that kept you up at night, sort of wondering how you might uh, shoot them the next day? Um, yeah, the the. The last moment of the la- of the shoot was we set the set alight. I, I couldn't believe that we got to do it. It was unbelievable. And there was so much to do in that day. So we had to film in the set, which had a hole in it. And then we had to get out of there. So it had to be all prepped, as in covered in fire retardant stuff, but also laying all the gas pipes. Then we had to do some green street stuff. Then we were on another set. And then we came back and we had to have three hours clear. So I was like, no, no, let me carry on filming. I've got to do... No, no, you have to stop because we have to get one out. And then it was like being Cape Canaveral, but like setting fire to a rocket. So we're outside under a gazebo 
And then we've got, because they're all Game of Thrones, this is the amazing thing about Northern Ireland. Game of Thrones has created this generation of amazing technicians and filmmakers. Set fire to so much shit on Game of Thrones. So they just know it so well. But even they were quite happy to set fire to a, a room. So that was pretty amazing. But it delivered real flame. To do that was amazing with the people who did it in. The other thing for me was, I think the sex scenes were interesting. I thought a lot about what it means to direct sex scenes. And we didn't have an intimacy coordination. And I really loved the idea of this. At first, I was so sceptical. I just thought, why the hell would we need this? I'm sorry, but I feel I'm a decent person. It doesn't come with being a woman, just because I'm a woman. But I'm not an asshole man who's going to make an actress do something that I know is exploitative. I'm not going to do that. And I have a female DP and I have a female producer. I'm not saying that we had a very strong feeling that we what we wanted to see and how we wanted to make the crew and the actresses particularly and the actor feel. So I felt very confident. I don't have anything against, I'm very positive towards intimacy coordinators, but we didn't have them. But I'm really interested in how you direct sex scenes. I'm really interested in whose pleasure it is, what who you're looking at. Um, so I, I'm actually hoping I get to do a lot more. I'm really interested in it. <laughs> Can I just ask you about Harlots as well? Obviously, is it the BBC yeah, yeah. decided that it's um, so good that people in the UK need to watch it? Because, uh, it you know, I think we only saw season one, I think, before it went yeah. over stateside. So what, what's just your kind of memories of, of working on that show and, and why is it a project you think that people should kind of revisit? I loved it. And it's quite daunting because you're going on with like Titans, some female Titans in there, Samantha Morton, Leslie Manville. And I was in series three and I have, there's something very drastic that happens and I won't say it because it's just really like, if you follow the show, it's totally shocking. And that's when I came, the immediate aftermath, that's when I came in episode four, series three. And it was very, a very different episode. And I just loved it. What I loved about the fact, at the beginning I was a bit sceptical. I thought, oh, I'd just come off Victoria, which I also had a great time doing. Period dramas were always put in a box. And actually... They shouldn't. They're just people, but they've got the same feelings, the same jealousies. They all kind of end up sleeping with wrong people and, you know, whatever. Uh, but Harlots is really interesting because the tone is really different. Actually, after a while, it really gets to you and you realise that it's no one kind of sits around the corner going, mm. if they've got a beef, they just storm up to them, bang on the door and just say it's their face. And I just love that. And, there's, and it's really about money and power and the, the power that the women have is their sex. And that's how they managed to actually buy property. And that that's just very challenging. Like when I said I was working on it, a couple of my relatives went, I'm not going to tell you after you work on harlots, it's about prostitution. I was like, well, yes and no. It's about the way that women earn their money. And um, so I loved it. It was it was quite, as a director, it's quite daunting working with people who are very brilliant and know their characters really well, particularly Leslie Manville and Simon Morton. But but yeah, and you know, people like that, you come in. They've seen what, I don't know, six directors before you and you think, how can I direct this person? And then you give them a note and they go, oh, yeah. And it's such a thrill because you think, well, I can't. They'll, they're, they're telling me about that character. But if they kind of, you know, they trust you and they take a note and you feel like you've improved it and shaped it, that's just brilliant. I love the ambition of the show. I love what Moira, the writer, and the creators, the producers at Momentum were trying to do with it. Just a different feel. And it's very, it's actually very interesting working on a show that is all female directors. I've never worked on a show like that, which is weird because it's a thing and not a thing. It shouldn't be a thing, but it actually is. 
Chloe Thomas. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.